you would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14 will be in verses 13 to 21 in this very famous section, the feeding of the 5,000. Certainly, uh, most of us in here have, have heard about this or read this or heard a sermon or many sermons preached on this. But whenever we come to a text that is very familiar, we must always make sure we still have, as we could call it, that holy curiosity to hear God speak rather than to assume we know everything. In this text, we're going to see a God who meets anxious people. And at least one of the thoughts that we have in an anxious state is the thought that maybe God will not provide. We're going to see how Jesus responds to this. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them. And healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We do look to you, Jehovah Jireh, the God who will provide. And we look to you who is the only one who can give us what we need in the preaching of the word. It is required of us that we would listen attentively to your word. So we ask that you would give us minds to focus and ears to hear. It's required of us to prepare our hearts beforehand, but we're asking for your forgiveness when we haven't. It's required of us that we examine what is preached to be according to Scripture. So give us the hearts to wrestle with what is said. It is required of all of us that we might believe the gospel. And so we ask that in this moment that you would give us the spiritual resurrection that we need. Provide for us as only you can. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. When John Patton was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands, he was frequently attacked and persecuted by the cannibals that were in that place. One night, the hostile natives surround his mission's headquarters with the intent on burning out the Pattons and killing them. John Patton and his wife 
They prayed all during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them. My friends, have you ever had a terror-filled night? Maybe it is not necessarily a physical fire that might be threatening you, but it is the fires of your conscience that might be threatening you. Have you ever had those moments when you thought that there would be no way that God could provide for you in this situation? Once again, as I like to say, welcome to the club. Because this is the life of the Christian in many instances. We often wonder if God will provide for us when we need him most. It's very interesting that the early church loved drawing the sign of the fish. The fish is certainly one of the more popular signs of Christianity, not more popular than the cross, but the fish was a very popular sign. Why is that the case? The reason why is because this section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 14, this instance of Jesus feeding the 5,000, it gave the early church great hope that against all odds, God will provide. God will always provide for His people when they are most needy. And the saying is true. If you don't need it, God won't give it. But if you do need it, God will provide it. That's what we're seeing here in this text. If you don't need it, God won't give it. If you do need it, God will provide it. Maybe you're looking at this text and you might be thinking, how can we know this is true? Well, here's one way. There were at least 5,000, most likely more, about 10,000 to 12,000 eyewitnesses to this. So actually, as we read this, we must keep in mind, it's not a matter of if this happened, because about 10 to 12,000 people saw this with their tangible eyes. The question is, how are you going to respond to this historical fact of what Jesus has done? Let's get into the text. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. What we see here, first of all, is that God loves to provide for the needy. He loves it. God loves to provide for the needy, and he loves to provide for the needy in desolate places. You actually will see right above this at the start of chapter 14, you'll see maybe that heading in your Bible that says the death of John the Baptist. We have to remember that John the Baptist was not merely the last of the Old Testament prophets, even though it's written about in the New Testament, but he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, but he's also Jesus's cousin. So Jesus, verse 13, he hears about John's death. And when it says that he withdrew from there, that word to withdraw means to avoid danger. No doubt what Jesus is doing, he's not fleeing because he's scared. He's fleeing so that he can preserve the timing of his death and resurrection. The question really here is this, and you can imagine the temptation that Satan might be subtly whispering to him this time that if John died preaching the gospel, will Jesus still preach the gospel? 
Would the kingdom of God still spread under such persecution? See, Jesus withdrew from that place so that he might be refreshed amidst sorrow. We also need to see this about Jesus Christ. Jesus is not merely God. He is God. He is also man. Jesus is true human. You see this because in many different reasons, Jesus withdrew from there so that he could get away, so that he could rest. Jesus would withdraw so that he could spend concentrated effort to refresh himself spiritually. And let us be reminded here, there was no more important leader of any ministry than Jesus. And Jesus had to rest. For your own leaders, wherever they might be, Brothers and sisters, prioritize their godliness more than their giftedness. Prioritize their walk with Jesus before their walk with you. Sometimes that means helping them say no to urgent things so that they can say yes to the most important things. We actually all have to learn this. But especially for those who would shepherd the sheep, who would feed the flock, we must let them say no to some things so that they can say yes to the most important thing. Let me also speak to the middle schoolers and high schoolers here. Friends are awesome, right? They are awesome. And there are times, and college students, this is for you too, you need to learn how to say no to school at times so that you can actually get out and be with people. But you also need to learn how to say no to your friends so that you can make sure you spend time with the truest of friends. We all need to make sure we prioritize corporate worship and the community of believers and our personal walk with Jesus. But once again, let us see another very important thing before we really dive into this. Look at uh, the end of the first sentence in verse 13. It says that he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. Desolate place would mean a place that would be uninhabited by people. It would certainly symbolize wilderness or chaos. And doesn't it remind you of something big in the Old Testament? Doesn't it remind you when God's people were also in a wilderness? Well, every original reader of Matthew's letter, they would know that Jesus is not merely going to do a miracle. He is showing that the very God who fed Israel in the Old Testament in the wilderness, Jesus is that God in the flesh. That's what's happening here. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament here in the flesh to feed his people in a wilderness. It is awesome that God loves to provide for the needy in desolate places, not always in the places where it's easy to feed people. Oftentimes, God will bring us to places where it feels like death so that we can be reminded that we need to rely on him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. He says that he went through such trials and tribulations because it It made them feel as if they were going to die in that moment. And he says, why did this happen? He says, to make us rely on God and not ourselves. My friends, are you in a desolate place? Good. Because God is teaching you, not always in comfortable ways, 
but He is teaching you to rely on Him more than yourself. He loves to provide for His people when they least expect it. I love the story about Hudson Taylor. It was a stormy night in Birmingham, England. Not Birmingham, Alabama, but that would be really cool. It was a stormy night in Birmingham, England, and Hudson Taylor was to speak to a meeting at Severn Street Schoolroom. And his hostess for the night assured him that nobody would show up because it was such a stormy night. But Taylor insisted on going and he said, I must go even if there is only a doorkeeper. Sure enough, less than a dozen people showed up. But apparently the meeting was marked with such unusual spiritual power that half of those who were present either became missionaries themselves or they gave their children to be missionaries or they were faithful supporters of Hudson Taylor's missionary in, missions work in China. My friends, when you least expect God to make something out of nothing, you must remember he is the God who makes something out of nothing. That is literally creation. He does not start with what he can work with. He makes it happen because he does not need anyone or anything else. Let us trust him that even in desolate places, he can make something out of nothing. God loves to provide for the needy. He loves to provide for the needy in desolate places, but he also loves to provide the needy with a person. Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, great meaning several thousand. And when he saw this crowd, even amidst how tired he was, he had compassion. I don't know about y'all, but maybe when, if I saw a crowd like this and I was wanting to get away, as soon as I would see them, the natural reaction within, within would be, I am annoyed. If one baby can make me annoyed at night, how might thousands of people make me feel? Let us be reminded, we are so different from Jesus. Because the natural reaction of Jesus even when he is fatigued, he sees these people who are sheep without a shepherd. And his natural reaction is compassion. That's the type of person Jesus provides. I love what Dane Ortland says. If compassion clothed itself in a human body and went walking around on this earth, what would it look like? Well, we don't have to wonder. Because that is who Jesus is. What does it mean when... It says that Jesus is compassionate. It means to be deeply affected in someone's inner being. It actually is a word that is used to describe, and this might sound weird, but the deep movement of the bowels within. The gut reaction is what the Greek is getting at here. And isn't that true? Because oftentimes when we feel compassion most, we feel it deep within our abdomen. This is the emotion, believe it or not, as B.B. Warfield tells us, it is the emotion that is used most to describe who Jesus is in the New Testament. You thought about that? What emotion is used to describe Jesus most? It is compassion. I love when it says that it's very rightly in the English, it says he had compassion, meaning that it was passive. In other words, it overcame him. It was a natural reaction. It was not fake. 
We see here that true godliness is seen in growing compassion for the needy and weak. True godliness is seen in growing compassion for the needy and the weak. That's the type of person who God provides. God loves to provide for the needy. He loves to provide for the needy in a desolate place and with a compassionate person. But he also loves to provide for the needy true healing. It says that he had compassion on them, but he didn't just sit back and say, well, I'll think about you. Well, I'll pray for you. He moves towards them and he heals them. It's interesting that this word for heal is actually where we get the English word for therapy. This word means to improve someone's situation. Now, this does not mean that we need to, the way we think about therapy today, that we read back into what it was back then, but rather we should let the past read forward into what we think about it today. Jesus is there to benefit these people. He's there to cure these people, to help these people, to bring them to safety, to cleanse them, to save them. Even in other instances in the Gospels, it means to help someone stand up. Jesus is there to improve these people's situations. But this physical, tangible example here is showing that there is a greater spiritual reality. Did I just go out? I might have. That's okay. I talk loud. You see, the greatest illness of these people is this. It is sin. When we see physical ailments, mental illness, we must remember that the greater reality spiritually is that we are sin sick. And so every time that Jesus is going to heal people tangibly, physically, he does. Absolutely. He cares for the body, but he also cares for your soul. You see, Jesus's desire to heal us is never less than bodily, but it is always more. My friends, sometimes Jesus will leave some people in certain situations for reasons unknown but to him. He will leave someone unhealed physically so that he might heal you spiritually. That is one of the greatest mysteries out there. But in strange ways, God will sometimes leave us unhealed physically so that we would realize the greater need spiritually. Sometimes he does heal you physically and praise God for doctors and medical providers and nurses and all the research we have. Brothers and sisters, if you are in that work, you're in a very, very great work. But sometimes, and some of you know this, he hasn't healed you. Why does he do that? He will do that because he's going to heal you in a greater way spiritually. And when he does that work, one day when you're in heaven, you will be healed physically. Jesus, he's trying to help these people in such a way where they might be in a better position to hear the word. We know in other places in the Gospels that this miracle was not unattached to the preaching of the word. 
See, miracles always in Scripture, they were always attached to the preaching of God's truth. We have to always remember this. We do not just minister to people in deed. We minister to people in word. And they always go together. Indeed, we can say this, that the great commandment to love others and love the Lord is never separated from the great commission to preach the truth. But let us be reminded yet again that brothers and sisters, if you don't need it, God won't give it. But if you do need it, God will provide it. You might not have all the answers that you want right now because of why he's left your particular condition unhealed. But trust that he is at work. If you don't need it, he won't give it. But if you do need it, he will provide it. God loves to provide for the needy, but God also, he loves to provide for the hungry. God loves to provide for the hungry, but first he challenges us. Leaders 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. How does Jesus respond? Here's how he responds. Verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Woo. Don't you love it when Jesus turns the table on them? They're in a desolate place. They're like Israel in, in Exodus. They're in the wilderness. The largest towns in that area had only a population anywhere from 2,000 to 3,000. So several thousand people there wouldn't be a town in the area that they could go to to get what they need in, in terms of bread. We also know that we see here that there was grass on the ground. That would mean that it was the season of spring, and when it's that season, grain would be low. So it was not a good situation for them in terms of food. But see, we need to remember this, that it never goes well for us when we look more to our circumstances than we look to our Savior. It never goes well for us when we look more to our circumstances than to our Savior. Here's what the disciples try to do. They try to help Jesus out. Guys, that'll always get you in theological jail whenever you try to help God out. Send the people away. The day's over. This is a desolate place. Let them go get what they need most. Don't you see how pessimistic they are? They're only looking at their, at their circumstances. Now, some of us might say, well, they're being wise. They're just trying to make sure they make wise decisions to provide how they can for the people. But my friends, wisdom is one thing. Pessimism is another thing. Wisdom is to be prepared for the ordinary things of life. But trusting God is what we need to do that he can provide for the extraordinary. The disciples are needing to learn this. That the primary need of this people is not the physical and the tangible, but rather the spiritual. Now don't hear me say this. Don't hear me say that the body does not matter. That's an ancient heresy that we call Gnosticism. Don't go there. The body matters. Jesus rose in body and soul. In heaven, we will dwell bodily. But my friends, do not forget the soul. Because if you neglect your soul, then your body will perish forever. But if your soul is saved by Christ, he will also save you in body. 
they're merely thinking here about how can Jesus provide for me physically, tangibly. Although that be very important, but Jesus is always thinking more. What do we do when we're in wilderness seasons? How often we, we look only at our abilities or our opportunities and we define God's ability and God's opportunities based on us. Isn't that what we do? We say God can only work with what I got. I know that's bad grammar, but you know me by now. God can only work with what I got. His hands are tied behind his back because he can only do with me what he has. You see, I do think it's interesting that the disciples give Jesus a command. Woo! Don't go there. They give Jesus a command, and isn't that what we often do as well? How often we try to look at God and say, I will be your God, rather than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, not my will, but yours be done. See, we often think in these situations of the wilderness, we also say, Jesus, nothing good can come out of this situation. Maybe you're in one of those. Maybe it's something relational or a sin that you have committed or sin that's been committed against you. Or maybe there's been an opportunity that's been lost or maybe an illness that has destroyed you or maybe the death of a loved one. And you think, God, what good can come out of this? But let us be reminded, when we are exhausted, God will renew us. When we have a thorn in our side, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, God's grace is sufficient. When depression darkens your day, God is with you amidst the storm. When your influence is virtually nothing, God will speak for you. When your reputation has been ruined, God will restore you and defend you. Amen? Jesus will often show us how powerless we are to do something so that we might learn more to depend on his provision. He will often do that. He brings us to a point to show us how powerless we are before he shows us how powerful he is. I love what J.I. Packer says. For Christians, weakness should be a way of life. Yet most of us try desperately to be sufficient on our own and we resent our limitations and our needs. But my friends, from the title of his book where that quote is from, for the Christian, weakness is the way. God is often in the business of killing us so that he might raise us up. I love it how Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Now, remember, these guys are most likely teenagers, so they often will think a lot better of themselves than what they really are. You give them something to eat. But Jesus is not saying this. Well, I believe in you. You can do it. This saying today that someone has said that even when we don't believe in God, God believes in us. But my friends, that is not true, and that's very egocentric. God is in the business of killing our self-obsession so that we can look to him. Because our self-obsession is what brought about the curse. 
Isn't it often true that God will give us an impossible task so that we might be properly humbled before he provides? And let's not just think about that individually, but let's also think about that corporately. But that's when God loves to provide. He loves to provide for the hungry. He loves to provide for the hungry by challenging us, but he loves to provide for the hungry also by bringing us to him. They said to Jesus, verse 17, we only have five loaves and two fish. Don't we so often do that? I only have this opportunity or I only have this knowledge. Isn't it very interesting that we put an infinite God in a finite box? But Jesus turns it around. Look at verse 18. He said to them, bring them, talking about what they had, bring them here to me. Isn't that awesome? The disciples command Jesus. Jesus now commands the disciples. Where does Jesus lead us when things seem most hopeless? To him. Jesus is saying, don't pass go and collect $200. Don't go try this out or that out. You bring it here to me because he is the God who can bring something out of nothing. Amen? Don't measure the power of God by your own strength. Don't measure the ability of God to change someone's heart by your own wisdom. We also need to see here is this. May all of our provision and the protection that we give to other people, may it be used to bring them to Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying to them, bring to me whatever meager measures you have and I will use them through you. My friends, are you weak and powerless? Good, because God has you right where he wants you. Are you strong and self-sufficient? Not good, because where Satan has you right where he wants you. God loves to use people like Ehud, who were people who were known as the people of the right hand. He literally had a handicapped right hand. He was a left-handed man. That's who God likes to use. My friends, if you think that maybe yourself or this church is weak, and you think, how in the world can we influence this society, this culture, where things are, where we are, my friends, you must think bigger about your God than your circumstances. I love this story about these people in Mizoram. I hope I'm saying that right. Mizoram, India. They have an, each family has an income of less than $1 a day. But every time they cook a meal, they put aside a handful of rice to give away so that the church can sell. Merely by them in extreme poverty, taking a handful of rice every single time they have a meal, the church per year is able to raise more than $1 million so that they can live on mission. God loves to provide by bringing us to him, even when we have least to offer. God loves to provide for the hungry. He loves to provide for the hungry by challenging us, by bringing us to him. And he loves to provide for the hungry by giving them more than they want. Are you guys hungry? Here's what we see with Jesus. Jesus is calling them to a meal 
that is not merely for food, but for family. Look at what it says here in verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. God loves to provide with far more than we've ever imagined. I love how Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we might know the love of God that surpasses all imagination. See, Jesus is not merely just going to give them a meal, but a meal symbolizes more than food. It symbolizes family. What Jesus is doing here is that he is gathering God's end time family. And you see it right here. And he is the head of that family. We see that in Colossians 1, that Christ is the head of the church. What Christ is doing here in Stillwater, even through maybe the meager measures that you might have, he is gathering his end time family because he wants to spend eternity with you. Amen? So much of this here in further studies, you see how it is looking forward to the Messianic banquet. We're going to feast in heaven. Isn't that amazing? And he's given us this picture here, and truly that is why we take the Lord's Supper. Why we prepare ourselves for taking the Lord's Supper in bread and in wine, because Jesus, remember, he's feeding us here so that we might be hungry for there. Always whenever you take the Lord's Supper, it is not merely for today or for this week, but it is to prepare you for eternity. We see also here the power of prayer, don't we? Jesus takes this lunchable size meal. That's about, you know, give or take how big it was. Seriously, it was small. And he prays. Isn't that amazing that Jesus, who is God, would still pray to God? He wouldn't just say, well, because of who I am, here you go. It's going to be a Shoney's buffet. He prays. A church will remain powerless when a church remains prayerless. One person has said that you will sooner find uh, essentially uh, a Christian. Well, what does it go? You will sooner. Oh, here it is. You will sooner find a human without breath than you will find a Christian without prayer. When Paul was converted, which is really when he was Saul, one of the chief ways in which you could see his conversion was that he was a man who was praying. The church will remain powerless when she remains prayerless. Jesus prays. And then he broke the loaves. That would actually be the sign of what, what would happen in family gatherings. But notice the order here. Jesus does not feed the crowds. But notice that he uses these, un- like these teenage disciples who are struggling with unbelief. He uses them to feed the crowds. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is not saying this, well, three strikes, you're out. He says, no, I want to use you in my mission. 
You might not think you have much to offer me, but you will only give to others what you receive from me. You will only be able to lead others if you follow me. You will only be able to speak to others if you listen to me and my words. That's what Jesus is telling us. Jesus loves to use sinners to minister to sinners. It says that they ate, verse 20, and they were satisfied. Literally, it's as if they were stuffed. It reminds us of what happened in 2 Kings 4.43 when the prophet Elisha, who learned under Elijah, Elisha in 2 Kings 4.43 did a miracle very similar to this. What is the connection here? Here's what it's saying. As Elisha was a great prophet, and even when it seemed like God would not provide for his people and that there were not many believers in the land during that day, that miracle for Elisha was for Elisha to have confidence that God will always provide for his people. And so Jesus Christ here, even in the face of John the Baptist being beheaded, when the kingdom of God is threatened, when it seems like preaching the gospel will not succeed, people are hearing, as it were, as they were as they're reminded of the Old Testament, that Jesus is the true prophet amidst all persecution. Listen to him. Listen to him and no one else. Listen to him and let God provide. Amen? Keep listening to him. It even says that there were 12 baskets left over. It's actually amazing because each of the 12 disciples would have come back with more than what they collectively began with. But certainly the number 12 also would remind original readers of the 12 tribes of Israel. What is this saying? Here's what it's saying. Jesus will always provide for his people wherever they are and whatever they face. If you don't need it, he will not give it. If you do need it, he will provide it. And he will often provide for you in ways that you do not expect. But he is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who will provide. God has always been the God who has provided for his people. It is a fantastic section here of Scripture in this real historical event where Jesus is declaring not merely that his message is endorsed by God, but that he is God and he will provide for his people. If you don't need it, God won't provide it. But if you do need it, he will provide it. The end of the story of John Patton goes like this. When daylight came, John Patton and his wife in the New Hebrides, they were amazed to see the next morning that their attackers had left. A year later, the chief of the tribe was converted to Christ. And Patton, remembering what had happened, he asked the chief what had kept them from burning down their house and killing the Pattons. That would be a great question to ask. Here's how the chief replied. Who were all those men that you had with you that night? Patton replied, there were no men there. It was just me and my wife. The chief argued that they had seen many men standing on guard, hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands, 
And they seemed to circle the mission station. And that's why they did not attack them. Did John Patton and his wife see this supernatural deliverance from God? No, they merely prayed. My friends, you have no idea how God is providing for you when you least expect it. When you least expect it, expect that God will provide for ways in which you can't always see. And isn't that what happened on the cross? When God took on flesh and the Son of God went to the cross, it was the darkest of days. It seemed as if sin, Satan, and death had won, but it was right then and there that God was reconciling the world to Himself. Amen? It was at the darkest night that God was preparing us for the brightest day. Brothers and sisters, there's no, 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 uh, excuse me, there's not more sin in you than there is grace in Jesus. There's not more suffering in you than there is life and redemption in Jesus. Your past cannot be too haunting for Jesus to heal, and your future cannot be too daunting for Jesus to be with you. He will provide. Amen? If you don't need it, He won't give it. But if you do need it, He will provide it. Trust Him. He will do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to receive this truth with faith and with love and humility. Help us to store up this truth in our hearts this week. And would you open up our eyes to behold you by faith as you provide for us. We ask that as we take you at your word, that you would enable us to bear fruit in due time. And we ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.